Today on Ag News Daily. It's a live animal certification, but conducted within 60 days of slaughter. And so that process verified program is really looking at the full life cycle of the animals from birth all the way through uh, slaughter. We gather information for that program from a variety of criteria. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast, sponsored today by Kubota, celebrating 50 years of helping people get the job done right with versatile, durable equipment. Kubota, together we do more. Cassidy, how you doing this morning? I'm doing good, Delaney. I had the craziest nightmare with these wild goats attacking me, and I just want to know if this means that some kind of goat is going to be in our future or if we're going to report on goats or what's going on with goats. That's an interesting one. I <laughs> I don't have a good uh, prediction for you. It was very interesting and I'll be on the lookout for some wild goat stories in our reporting. Okay, well, I don't have any goat-related news, sadly, today, Cassidy, but I do have some news following up yesterday's a uh, discussion of the new Inflation Reduction Act that was passed in the Senate on Sunday. It, of course, had quite a bit of money earmarked for it, but we finally started to get some more specifics about what is earmarked and will impact agriculture specifically. So about $369 billion of that bill will be dedicated to energy programs, including things like funding for blender pump and biofuel infrastructure, a collective $3 billion for renewable energy products, or excuse me, projects in rural areas, rural electric cooperative direct payments that allow for renewable energy tax credits, and an extension on the dollar a gallon tax credit for biomass-based diesel through 2024. So that's what's going on in the energy side. On the farm debt side, I think we talked about this yesterday, but the IRA will look to combat uh, inflation for the farm sector specifically by delivering $5.3 billion of farm debt relief, which will help borrowers in distressed positions who hold direct or guaranteed farm loans and also about $2.2 billion in payments to farmers who experienced discrimination in USDA loan programs. I'm not entirely sure how they're going to go about deciding if those farmers were discriminated against uh, getting USDA loan programs, but nonetheless, they've earmarked $2.2 million for that. And of course, climate and conservation, they have earmarked $18 billion in four conservation programs that I mentioned yesterday on the podcast. But really, the big one here uh, that I don't think we touched on too much yesterday was the win that we see or should see for the biofuels industry, Cassidy. And in addition to that news, I also saw an article that Senate has been disapproving heavily the new NP- NEPA regulation reform that Biden rolled out. And this is almost a unanimous pushback from Senate, and it was supported by the American Farm Bureau Federation, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Public Lands Council, and Agriculture Retails Association. So it seems like most people are against this new rollout of regulations that rolls back 
the substantial change that the Trump administration made in 2020, which was the first major modernization since 1978. Yes, and NEPA, for those of you that are not up to speed on all of the government acronyms, is the National Environmental Policy Act. Cassidy, can you give any specifics to our listeners about what was included in those changes during the Trump administration? So it seems like it's actually hurting our Jobs Act and our infrastructure investment, which has been a big talk by Pete Buttigieg. So I'm confused on why the Biden administration is pushing back on these investments. That is certainly a story we'll continue to watch there, Cassidy. But uh, what I've been watching is the farm economy. And it's largely expected by analysts that 2022 is going to be pretty much the last year of big profits in the ag sector. They're suggesting that folks should be ready for big profit swings in 2023. Now, granted, these numbers I'm about to share are specific to the state of Illinois, but I think is very telling for what farm country in general will probably follow suit. But the first round of 2023 Illinois crop budgets were released by the University of Illinois, and they show a clear trend of higher input costs and lower returns. Projected returns for 2022 as of right now, based on where current commodity prices are at, suggests that farmers should be profiting about $156 per acre. However, Come 2023, given higher input costs and University of Illinois used a 530 for corn and 1275 for soybeans, they're suggesting that, again, this is specific to the state of Illinois, but they're suggesting that Illinois farmland will only have a return of about $25 per acre, Cassidy, which is an 80% swing given where we're at this year. Following up that news, we also saw that in 2022, we hit uh, record farmland values, up 14% from 2021. USDA reported that the nation average value of nation's cropland is about $5,050. That's up $630 from 2021, or 14%. Now, since 2014, We've seen largely the value of U.S. cropland hover around $4,000 per acre until 2021 is when we really started to see farmland values skyrocket and take off. Will we see that come back down in 2023 is the big question. And of course, that 5,050 number is the average across all U.S. states. When you look at states like Iowa, Illinois, um, even into Ohio, Indiana, those average cropland values are more around the eight to nine thousand dollar mark. So some states are lower than that five thousand fifty. Some are substantially higher than that five thousand fifty. But regardless, the big headline here is farmland values continue to be trending upward, at least here through the rest of 2022, making it harder, Cassidy, to think about uh, buying farmland, knowing that next year profits are going to be a little tighter. Absolutely, Delaney. I've done a lot of interviews in my other role with Vertical Exchange lately. And when I ask about what they see to be the biggest issues coming down the pipeline for farmers in America, the 
overarching answer from everyone is the input cost and the lack of profit that's going to be coming in these next few years. So we'll have to keep an eye on the sentiment barometer that Tanner and I got to talk to the doctor from Purdue about to see if that's affecting how farmers are feeling about the farming industry. Yes, I'm sure we could see that reflected in this month's ag economy barometer there, like you're suggesting. Switching gears a little bit, I have some weather-related news from Georgia. Sadly, two soldiers out of Fort Benning died this week after being caught in a severe thunderstorm in the mountains of northern Georgia. This is not the first Army-related death from weather in Georgia this month. There was also a death of a soldier back at the beginning of the month where he was struck by lightning and multiple others were injured. Seems like Georgia is getting a lot of severe weather that is not boding well for the Fort Benning area. Oh, that's uh, some sad news there. Had not seen that piece of news, Cassidy, but it's also continuing to be heartbreaking what we're seeing coming out of Russia, Ukraine, and have not been able to confirm that story I reported on yesterday that Lebanon had rejected that first initial shipment due to quality issues. But we do know that ships exporting through the Ukraine, Russian and Russian Black Sea area will be protected by a 10-mile nautical buffer zone, according to the agreement that Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, and the UN put together. They say that all parties are now working out written procedures for shipping and insurance companies to resume operations in the Ukrainian ports. But since the grain corridor has opened, we've seen 10 ships officially leave the ports with corn, soybean, sunflower oil, and sunflower meal, And more importantly, two empty vessels have traveled to Ukraine to collect shipments. So it's going to be interesting to see if we get reports of other countries, other buyers rejecting those shipments due to quality or safety concerns. That will be something we have to watch, Delaney. And in addition to the shipments coming out of Ukraine, some other news, trade news coming from Russia is that Russia has banned imports of agriculture products from 31 of the 34 regions of Moldova starting on August 15th. Oh, I had not seen that. It says that Russia has a history of using bans on food and imports to display their power, which we know. Moldova has reduced supplies of fruits to Russia since Moscow sent thousands of troops to Ukraine in February 24th due to complicated logistics. However, the supplies to the country are still imported to farmers in Moldova. So this may not bode well for the country of Moldova, and we'll have to keep an eye on how this affects their farming. Well, Cassidy, I have another export story, but before I get to that, I wanted to remind our folks that we are sponsored today by Kubota. Farming demands well-built equipment, and Kubota equipment is proven for over a century. Tractors that are adaptable and versatile, hay tools backed by a two-year warranty, sidekick utility vehicles where durability meets speed, and productive SSV skid steers. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. Now, you mentioned there that Moldova may have a decrease in exports, but the U.S., surprisingly, given all that we've seen going on right now with Taiwan and China, are still expected to see record exports to China. 
Economist David Widmar said that even with all these rising tensions, China is still on track to break the record of American agricultural purchases that were set last year. Halfway into the year, China was more than $2 billion ahead of any purchases that Canada or Mexico has made of U.S. ag exports. And as we know, those three nations, China, Canada, and Mexico, are routinely our top three importers of U.S. ag products. China responsible for about every one in five dollars of U.S. ag products. So President Biden said he was still concerned about Chinese military exercises that are going on following the visit by Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But he said he doesn't think they're going to do anything more than that. Aside from the retaliations, we saw them slap on some Taiwanese products. But from January 1st through June of 2022, China has purchased $16.8 billion of U.S. food and ag exports, putting them in first place for U.S. ag exports. And at this current pace, Widmar is suggesting that China might purchase as much as $40 billion of U.S. ag exports this year, which is very strong demand. So we certainly hope we see that demand continue. That will certainly help commodity markets remain supported. And the only downside to that is, you know, they could be stockpiling and preparing themselves to not do business with the U.S. in the future. So that is one risk that analysts are suggesting we pay close attention to as we head into next year, Cassidy. Yeah, Delaney, that is some good news to watch coming out of China. I know we're all antsy to see what's going to happen with the China and Taiwan situation and our trade deals. My last little bit of news here before you jump into markets comes from the Netherlands, where North Sea Farmers has conducted their first mechanical harvest of seaweed. I know we've talked a lot on the podcast, especially when we had CH4 Global on about the future of seaweed as cattle feed, and this is looks like it's going to be a big step while more people are starting to commercially grow and harvest seaweed. Interesting, and I know we know we've talked to a lot of different folks who are using that as a feed for livestock. Yes, for sure, and I think in this article it talks a lot about how seaweed commercially has a huge future not only as a feed for livestock, but also for humans. So not only is it the Netherlands uh, trying to catch up, but a lot of other countries in Europe are upping their production of seaweed to try and catch up with Asia and mainly China, who produce about 97% of the commercial seaweed in the world right now. I don't think I personally would like to eat seaweed, but I suppose if people are plant-based, that might be a good alternative for them. Yeah, I'm only having seaweed on my sushi. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know about, yeah, that that seems like the only appropriate place in my mind. But uh, Cassidy, one final piece, kind of two pieces of small news here. But as we continue to watch what weather is going to be doing later this week, over the next couple of days, we're going to see things heating up in the plains and western corn belts. A large ridge is opening over the central U.S. later this week pushing temperatures into the upper 90s and low 100s. Eric Snodgrass said basically the temperature patterns will be split down the Mississippi River with those to the west of the Mississippi 
temperatures in the 90s and 100s. And those to the east of the Mississippi can expect some cooler weather to the east. So Cassidy, I think you'll be in the stretch that's getting the hot weather. You don't say. I think I'm pretty used to being on that side (laughs) by now. Absolutely. Well, the uh, final piece of news here I had that's somewhat weather related is the second day of the BTN digital crop tour, which was in Illinois and Ohio, came back with yields fairly good, but not the best in the country. They say they were average yields. Uh, The Eastern Corn Belt definitely stood out to them this year, as they said that on Tuesday, the Eastern Corn Belt states of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio are at or near each state's five-year average compiled by USDA. So Grow Intelligence projected Illinois corn and soybean yields at 196 bushels and 60 bushels, respectively, just slightly above their five-year average. Indiana and Ohio put soybean yield estimates about a half to three bushel per acre higher than their five-year average. And Indiana corn and soybean yields were pegged at a 180 and 54 bushels per acre, respectively. So certainly starting to see those yields trickle in here. And of course, this is ahead of the Pro Farmer Crop Tour, which will kick off here in another, I think, week or two, Cassidy. So certainly going to be interesting to see what numbers come out of that tour and whether or not they match up with these yields that are coming out of the DTN digital yield tour right now. Yeah, Delaney, and it'll be interesting to see how they match up with the WASD report this month. Well, Cassidy, I'm glad you mentioned the WASD report because, of course, yes, that comes out later this week, August 12th, aka Friday. We'll be sure to fill our listeners in on what's coming out in that report. But ahead of the report, we're still seeing grains trading stronger today, heading into the opening session. New crop corn up three and three quarters cents at 617. New crop soybeans up eight and three quarters cents at 1437, largely trading that hot and dry weather coming later this week. December Chicago wheat up 15 and a half cents at eight. 14 and livestock are having the opposite story this morning down on the day as heading into the opening session October live cattle are down a dollar 05 at a buck 43 September feeders down three dollars 15 cents at 182.50 and October lean hogs down 70 cents on the morning at 99.60 Cassidy we're going to be talking about beef and carbon today. You may not think those two things go hand in hand, but they certainly do. And folks, before we turn it over to that conversation, I wanted to remind you that farming demands well-built equipment and Kubota equipment is proven for over a century. Tractors that are adaptable and versatile, hay tools backed by a two-year warranty, sidekick utility vehicles where durability meets speed, and productive SSV skid steers. Visit your local Kubota dealer for a demo today. And with that, Cassidy, I think let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, listeners, I'm happy to introduce you all to Dr. Colin Beal of Low Carbon Beef. He's CEO and founder of this company. And here to talk a little bit about a article we reported on last week. But before that, Colin, would you mind just giving us a little background on yourself and how you got to where you are? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to share a little bit about what we're doing. 
so I grew up in Virginia. My father was an animal science professor, and we had cattle there in Virginia as well. I went to school for engineering, and then after I got done with school, uh, I've kind of come back to the uh, the cattle industry. I also have an engineering consulting company that focuses on doing life cycle assessment. And so while I was working on our cattle company and also doing life cycle assessment for the engineering projects, it was kind of at a time when there was a lot of media articles about the greenhouse gas impacts of cattle production. And so that's really where the concept of low carbon beef came from, to conduct life cycle assessment on beef production and be able to differentiate cattle that are produced with lower greenhouse gas emissions. And so we started the company in 2018 and have been kind of working to to get to the where we're at now. Awesome. Thank you for that background. Now, the article that I specifically picked up last week on our show was on Drovers, and it was a press release about your new LCB Enrolled program. So what is this program, and how does it differ from what y'all were doing before? Sure. So I might start by explaining a little bit about the Process Verified program. That's a USDA program, and it's an end-of-life certification. for It's a live animal certification, but conducted within 60 days of slaughter. And so that process verified program is really looking at the full life cycle of the animals from birth all the way through uh, slaughter. We gather information for that program from a variety of criteria that span uh, four categories that are feed, fuel, fertilizer, that includes manure management, and function or cattle performance. And so LCB Enrolled, which is the new program that we announced as a, a partnership with Where Food Comes From, and administered through IMI Global. It's sort of a feeder program for the end-of-life process verified program. And so LCB Enrolled is conducted on weaned calves, for example, 500 weight calves that are leaving a ranch of birth, to get them enrolled in the database such that we can follow them through finishing to ultimately conduct the process verified program. Okay, awesome. And so what does it look like for a rancher or a feedlot manager to employ either one of these programs in their operation? Yeah, so for LCB Enrolled, the first step is to reach out to IMI, and it is an add-on program with the care program. And so can get some more information from the IMI folks about how to get that process started. And then we'll work with those producers to gather information that's needed for conducting the certification. That can include things like head counts, um, birth dates of the first calf that's born, nitrogen fertilizer records, cattle performance measures. And so we'll, we'll work through that with the, the ranchers to get the data that we would need and then work with IMI to determine if those cattle qualify. And the process for the PVP is essentially the same, but in that case, we're working with multiple segments of the production pathway going from cow-calf backgrounding and also including feed yard. And we just work with those cattle owners to gather that data such that we can conduct the certification. So what challenges have y'all had trying to get ranchers to start using your programs or any pushback y'all have had when you announced the new program? Sure. So the biggest thing right now is just, you know, these new programs take time to connect the supply and the demand. And so that's what we're focused on doing right now is setting up these partnerships between cattle producers, packers, retailers, consumers to provide added value and premiums for not only the ranchers, but the other 
uh, entities in that supply chain. And so that's really what we're working on right now. We developed the programs. We, you know, have been reaching out to everybody involved from ranchers to consumers. Uh, and now we're in the process of kind of connecting those supply chains and ensuring that those premiums are provided for cattle that qualify. So what's next for low carbon beef? What do y'all have in the works for the future and what are you excited about? Yeah, I mean, I think right now we're really focused on getting these programs implemented and and scaling them up uh, to build an inventory for uh, supply chains, like I mentioned. And so that's really what we're focused on. So developing relationships with ranchers, with packers and with retailers is is really what we're excited about and what we're focused on right now. And hopefully we can connect all of those uh, pieces to get low carbon beef into, uh, you know, the meat shelf soon. And is this something that y'all are growing little by little in certain areas? Do you have a, of course you're focused in cattle country, I'm sure, but is, are you taking over Texas and then moving into Kansas? Do you have a certain plan for how you're trying to get this pushed out in the best way? Uh, not necessarily based on geography. So we, it's nationwide open to any producers in the, in the United States. Um, and we've also been working with several entities that are, um, international organizations as well. Uh, but not so much a focus on geography, but kind of focused on the producers that are already enrolled in programs. And that's in part why uh, the collaboration with IMI uh, is exciting for us as a lot of those producers are really familiar with uh, submitting the data to our IMI and going through the audit process. And so kind of starting there and then working through uh, to, to scale up to some more commodity uh, settings, I guess. Okay. And if any of the producers that listen to our show are interested in getting involved in this program and want to learn more about it, where can they find you and your company? Yeah, so the website is lowcarbonranch.com. That's the best place to get some information about it. Uh, Our email address is info at lowcarbonranch.com. So happy to provide more information for anybody that's interested the program LCB Enrolled is also included on IMI Global's website. So you can find that online and find some more information and reach out to those folks too. So that would be the best way to get in touch with us. Great. Well, Dr. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll be excited to watch this program grow and see what it does. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, Delaney, that was a very fun conversation that I had with Dr. Beal of Low Carbon Beef, and I'm excited to see what's going to come of their new LCB Enrolled program. I am as well, and I'm sad I missed that uh, interview, Cassidy, because it sounded like a good one. Yes, it was very fun, and I definitely do think we'll be staying in touch with Colin and his team to see what they have coming down the pipeline. Absolutely, but folks, we've got more great things coming down the pipeline for you this week. I don't want to give too much away, but just stay tuned with us. We've got more to share coming up on the podcast. Follow along with us on social media at Ag News Daily. And be sure to hit subscribe if you're not already doing so, so you can catch every new episode that we release here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Cassidy, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.